Hello, producer Trent here. Welcome to a Slapstick Shambles episode of Book Shambles. We've got three of these coming up, uh, one of which is just a straight episode of Book Shambles. We recorded live at the Slapstick Festival. I will leave Robin to explain uh, what's going on with these episodes in a moment. But first, I just want to remind you to visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge your support for the show. It means we're able to go out and do stuff at these uh, festivals and record them and uh, put them out for you and obviously uh, hire studios and stuff to do all the normal episodes of Book Shambles. So as little as a dollar a month, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Thank you for all your support on there. Thank you to our Patreon supporters who have been with us since episode one many, many years ago. And a big welcome to all our new Patreon supporters as well. Just before I throw to Robin to uh, introduce these episodes, a quick little note that the live panel shows that these were recorded obviously included uh, lots of clips, so we can't include those in the podcast for A, copyright reasons, and B, they are slapstick clips, which don't really work in an audio-only format most of the time. So you'll just hear a little temple block noise to separate the discussions. Uh, Anyway, enough of that. Here's Robin. Hello, welcome to a special Slapstick Shambles. Every January I go down to the Slapstick Festival in Bristol and I meet lots of people who have been tremendously creative in creating comedy over normally the last 30, 40, 50, even 60 years. And I've never really bothered to record them before, but this time we were meeting so many interesting people and talking about so many fascinating things, uh, including Steve Merchant, who I spent an evening with talking about Laurel and Hardy and the goodies and also Tim Brooke Taylor on his own talking about the last the 1948 show. So... Um, We thought we'd record them and put them together. So these are the people that I spoke to at the Slapstick Festival in Bristol. And we'll start off with a conversation I had with Steve Merchant about Laurel and Hardy. This was recorded at the Redgrave Theatre. I was introduced to Laurel and Hardy by my my father, who's here tonight. Where are you, Dad? Here you are, yeah. Ron Merchant, yeah. Don't encourage him. And um, (laughs) he... uh, if you've heard me talk about my dad before, you'll know that he, um, he is a, uh, he's a... He's not... I'm trying to find the word. No, it's not... I wouldn't say ungenerous is the word. The word, the word I'm looking for is um, stingy. Um, you know, that's cheapskate. Um, miser, miserly, mean. Um, he, likes, he likes a bargain. And I think that is why uh, my sister and I were introduced to Laurel and Hardy at a young age. Um, it was quite a cost-effective way of entertaining us, particularly in the, uh, the school holidays. Uh, like I say, he didn't like to spend money. I remember when my sister Alex, um, she said to him once when she was young, um, why is it that all my friends get uh, a pound from the tooth fairy and I only get 10p? And uh, my father, quick as a flash, said, because all the other tooth fairies have wives that work. <laughs> but, um, but he, uh, you know, he didn't, he wasn't going to take us, you know, to ice, to ice skating or, you know, or uh, to the cinema where he might have to spend money. He did take me once to the park to play cricket. We went to the cricket. That was nice. Remember that? We went around to the Hallam Common, cricket bat. Yeah. I bowled, uh, he bowled the ball. I hit it. He went, I'm not going to run after that. We went home. That was it. That was the last, <laughs> last time I played cricket. But, um, uh, but he would often put on BBC Two, and we would sit and watch, you know, a lot of the, the black, black and white movies that they used to show then. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire and, and Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, and Lauren and Hardy. And I think, particularly for kids, you know, there, there's something about them. There is something so kind of childlike 
uh, particularly about Stan, you know, who, who sort of, like a child, is just always trying to get something done, and then only really when he's confused does he start crying. Um, and uh, it's not unlike a child. And um, I think it's very sweet that even I come in sometimes if I'm visiting my parents, and he'll be showing my, uh, my niece and nephew, his grandkids, Lauren Hardy, uh, which is very sweet, on the iPad now, um, uh, which I think I bought for you. Um, and um, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so I've done my research for this evening. My father bought me this book, um, secondhand. And um, so um, I'm going to be joined out here with uh, Robin Ince, a good friend of mine, and uh, we're going to chat about Lauren Hardy. I should just warn, perhaps for younger people, the um, portrayal of the women in some of these films is a little bit uh, dated, so I apologize for that. They tend to be sort of cast as, uh, you know, as kind of nagging wives or blackmailing ex-girlfriends or... Um, <laughs> Um, and it's something that, you know, it's sort of, it, you know, unfortunately, women roles were like that, um, you know, since really the 1930s until um, last year, I think. Um, so, uh, but anyway, you try and, try and look past that and forgive them that. These films are, you know, approaching, you know, uh, 80 or 90 years old. Uh, anyway, enjoy this first one. This is from, uh, I think, let me just check the book, uh, 1932. It's called Helpmates. And we'll be back out and we'll have a chat and uh, we'll have some laughs. All right, thanks, everyone. Thank you. That is, it, it's, we were just talking about this backstage, the joy of, of Laurel and Hardy, the connection that you make, because I think for, for those of you who regularly come to the Slapstick Festival know, like, you know, Chaplin's great, but you don't kind of think, I'm a bit like that. You don't kind of go, oh, I, there was a time I met a blind flower seller as well <laughs> when I was a tramp, and I, you know, in the same way, Keaton, I was taking this train across the Midwest and stuff happened, but Laurel and Hardy, you watch and you go, oh, yeah, I had that idea of trying to clean the thing up, and then I flooded the thing and the chimney fell off. You know, it's like <laughs> you feel immediately sure. that you, you can go, oh, yeah, that they, they, they have a certain form of, of, of idiocy that I think has a humanity that is different to the, the others. Yeah, I, um, Robin Ince, by the way, welcome, Robin. Oh, sorry, hello. Um, sorry. Yes, I, uh, I was thinking about this, and watching these clips and thinking how often I've been involved in scenarios in which my own, uh, where my own belief that I could achieve something has resulted in, not disaster, but, you know, close to disaster. There's something relatable about the, as I was mentioning before, the, 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 the certainty with which they begin a project, like it will never go wrong. Mm. They're absolutely going to work in a sawmill and it's going to be fine and there's going to be band saws and, you know, and paint and sticky things and that's going to be fine. And somehow prior to the film beginning, their lives have been, they presumably have got by okay. They've often got married, they have homes, and then somehow when the film begins... <laughs> That's the day everything goes horribly yeah. wrong for them. Um, well, that's what I love is the expectation, which is... I don't think we're showing anything from County Hospital tonight. Not tonight. But for, if you've not seen County... It starts off with Ollie is in the hospital, and he's having a lovely time. He's, he's having a rest. That's right. And then he suddenly hears Stan whistling, and he just... And he knows from that point onwards, everything's destroyed. He's doomed. Look at that camera going, well, that's the idle over. I in had this, a brilliant this idea not. this morning... Yeah, I'm going to. Exactly. And they're honestly, genuinely yeah. worried. Like this is something awful could happen here, and I haven't really thought this through. And there's a number of instances in my life where, again, my sort of gung ho, Lauren Hardy style spirit that we can make this happen has uh, has almost ended in tears. And just the it's again it's the it's it's Ollie's commitment to this, um, and also it's a real good demonstration of Oliver's like that. There's something immaculate about his 
his physicality. Mm. You know, for a big man, there's something about the, the sort of specificity of his, of his hands and his fingers, and there's a kind of daintiness to it all, you know, which I think, as far as I'm aware, reading this book, thank you, Dad, is, um, <laughs> you know, for, me, for him observing people growing up, he grew up in the South in, in Georgia, and there's something about sort of, you know, the people there having a sort of dignity and carrying themselves with a dignity, and he's kind of adopted some of that. And I think well, sort of what I admire about them is when you think about how early they were, that now all comedians draw on the past in one way mm. or another, steal from different people, including them. They were sort of inventing these characters from thin air, and they weren't drawing on this long history of screen comedy. And so they've had to cultivate these personas sort of from nowhere, you know, and they're really refined personas of Ollie as this kind of, he's pompous, and, he, and, he's, and he's, you know, just the way he takes off his hat, and he holds it with sort of elegance, and he rings a doorbell. Mm. Everything's done with such a kind of precision, and a, it's it's really it's really kind of elegant. Because there's, I'm trying to remember what, what it's called now. I know someone in this audience will know, but there's the beautiful one where um, Stan has remained guarding a trench for about 15 years after right. the war's ended. And there's a lovely, again, I think it's the love. That's part of it. Is that they're, they're both idiots. One of them kind of knows he's an idiot. The other one is, is less aware of that. And there's that beautiful scene where Stan, having got back to the hospital, is just sitting on his leg like that. Right. And Ollie arrives and thinks Naturally he's lost a leg. Assumes he's lost and a leg. he carries him with both legs for about five... Yeah. And, and that, the That's slowness right. of realisation, that could have been played out in... A, I mean, it's something that I love about your humour. I think some of the best moments are the slowness. Right. That bit of going, we know something's gone wrong here, but this is not going to get sorted in a couple of minutes. Right. This is going to be ten minutes We're gonna sit uh, in yeah, the, of trying in the... to work out that's right, yeah. that's right. I mean, that sequence you, you mentioned, uh, I, I almost included, but it is so long, I mean, it goes on, and it's hilarious, but it goes on for like five or six minutes of just him carrying, and we know that uh, Stan has got two legs, and Ollie doesn't, and at one point he puts Stan down yeah, to open yeah. the car door, and Stan stands on two legs, <laughs> and then climbs back into his arms, and there's something about... There's that thing, that childlike quality of Stan that he never queries. He never queries that Ollie's going to give him a foot massage. That's, of course he is. He's yeah, going to give me yeah. a foot massage. He's going to carry me to the car. There's no, there's that, that idea that it would never occur to Stan to interrupt Ollie's business. You know, he doesn't want to bother him. Um, it's, a it's a wonderful uh, idea, a wonderful kind of bit of characterization. Well, that does seem, again, in, in, in your work, because would you say, in terms of people that you've gone, this is an inspiration? Oh. Laurel and Hardy, I think, you know, from, from, from the office onwards. And I think also in your stand-up, there was a lovely sense where you would, in, in the early version you had, where if anyone saw Steve when he, when he was first going, he would come on with a tremendous high status about he was the best act on. And then he'd notice someone in the audience who wasn't having enough fun. And by, he would then fall apart... And by the end of it, he'd be looking at the audience and he'd say, uh, don't tell anyone you've seen this. If you do, I'll say you're lying. And, and he would go on and then storm off. You would, you would, the beautiful moment where you would storm off stage and you go, right, that's it. And you just storm off. You can't get out that way. <laughs> now that... <laughs> right. I did that quicker. Yes, but that would sit that there for moment, ages. That moment, and it, within a 20-minute set, to take that risk of right. doing the full narrative arc of this guy has gone on stage and said, I am the best comedian in Bristol. Right. Probably south of England. Yes. And I mean, then... if, you, if you're playing Leeds, they don't know what's going on. Yeah. Because <laughs> they'd never heard of me. And uh, sometimes it went great, and it was the greatest night of, you know, ever. And then when they didn't understand the joke and they just thought I was an arrogant comedian from the West Country, I was done for. 
because I had no act. So they just, they really were thinking, yeah, fuck off. That was, um, but that was my favourite thing. My favourite thing was watching you where 60% of the audience got it right. and 40% were furious. Oh. And then they're even more furious because what are those people getting out of it? And I watched a yep. comic watch you who didn't understand what you were doing, which made it even funnier. He was shit. And it was just, but it was such well, a beautiful I thing. Yes, but I remember Exeter where I, no one got it except the waitress. And a, and a man actually shouted, and I didn't think anyone at first actually said this, but a man did shout taxi for the comedian. And the audience, round of applause. It was, that was agony. And uh, because, yeah, I had no other act to go. But it was, of course, influenced in some way by that. Uh, again, just something about the, the sort of pomposity of that idea of coming out and assuming everyone thought you were fantastic. It's very kind of Ollie Hardy in a way. And also, clearly in the office, we, we, were, all, we were shamelessly ripping them off with the looks to the camera. And you'd see that with... At Martin Freeman, we would often say to him as Tim, do an Ollie, which would be to look mm. at the camera in that, that <laughs> way, which is very shamelessly uh, Ollie Hardy, obviously. And um, even when we did the show Life's Too Short with Warwick Davis, we've got a whole sequence in which Warwick has taken receipt of a new washing machine and he's gone to get, he needs to get rid of the old one because they won't take away the, the, the old one. And he goes to get some sack trucks and he's kind of hopeless assistant, very much more modeled on, Laurel, uh, on Stan Laurel, um, sort of tries to be helpful by moving the new one into place. And, and then Warwick comes back and picks up what he thinks is the old washing machine, but it's actually the new washing machine and wheels it away and fly tips it into a ditch. <laughs> and, um, and only then does the assistant announce, I wonder if that seemed weird that you were trying to throw away a new washing machine. And um, so that was a shame, you know, like a sh and we just sat in it again for sort of five or six minutes of just him trundling it away, looking for somewhere to dump it. The whole time, the audience knowing that you're waiting for that moment, right, where Ollie realizes Stan has got two legs or it's not his foot. And that's the, sort of the joy of it, is that, just, that anticipation. I I've realised that I ripped off your act for an Edinburgh show that I once did, oh, but it good. was a tremendous failure, so that's good. <laughs> it was a show that it ended with me punching a melon in which I'd drawn Vernon Kay's face on it until it exploded and then singing Mustang Sally, but a lot of people didn't get it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it was, a lot of people used to think... Oh, we yeah. have a melon here tonight, <laughs> yeah. Robin. We'd like to see how... Hang on, get me a Sharpie. I can still do Vernon's face. He's receding a bit now, so I've changed that. Um, now, that brings us very neatly to your next clip. Of course it does. Uh, pack up your troubles. So, yes. <laughs> why have you chosen that? Uh, well, there's something always nice about Stan and Ollie trying to help other people. Uh, and in this one, they, um, they, uh, th their war buddy has died, you know, sort of in battle, and they've sort of adopted his, his young daughter, his motherless young child. And it's just, this is just, just a clip I just like, because it's just, it's, again, it's just sort of perfect bits of business, you know? And sometimes it's as simple as, as you know, just clunking into a door frame. It doesn't have to be a huge fall. It's just something about those little bits of, of, of magic. Uh, and again, lots of good examples of Ollie just staring at the camera, often as if to say, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm having to put up with? Um, and uh, anyway, this is it. Pack up your troubles. What I think marks out most of the people who kind of get celebrated by the Slapstick Festival is the fact that, you know, that looking at that doorframe bit, a lot of comics go, oh, then I bump in the doorframe, that's a bit of slapstick, then we move on. Right. It's the fact that to use that doorframe so much, right. and for each time for it to be rewarding, that seems to be the thing that marks out the genius of, of, of Oliver Hardy and of Stan Laurel's working out the precision. Right, of just walking through a door. I mean, it's literally got to walk through a door. It's something you do constantly. And there's something about the, the, the maybe you were saying earlier about sort of them in relation to some of those other 
uh, silent greats is that there's something very kind of domestic about Stan and Ollie. You know, they are in houses, they're just trying to clean and tidy and do the job of work and walk through a door. You know, they're just, they're simple operations that they, that their own dignity will never, um, would, would just constantly be undermined by just those simple tasks. It's reading, reading in this book, I was, um, it was funny, we were talking about the idea of kind of slapstick in real life. And in this one, it says, um, in 1926, Hardy was to appear in Get Em Young. Stan Laurel, who was supposed to direct the film, played the part instead when Hardy was unexpectedly hospitalized after being burned by a hot leg of lamb. <laughs> <laughs> but in what possible way are you hospitalized by a leg of lamb? I can't... And you immediately imagine it's like he's trying to eat it and it's just like a molten inferno of lamb. And Oh, oh, my mouth's burning! Oh, God! Oh, oh. It's just there's something about like how is it? How is a leg of lamb getting that hot that it can that it could burn you so much you had to go to hospital? Are you dropping? Is it? I just have no concept of how that occurs. And I'm, yet there I'm you just are. impressed by that. That book is mainly pictures. It has very few bits of information. And the fact that whoever edited it went, we got to keep the lamb story. Keep the leg of lamb story. Because that, that's pivotal, really, yeah. in the Lauren Hardy story. Sure. Is In fact, keep all the bits where Oliver scolded himself on hot foods. There's a, <laughs> that, that tart where all the jam came out and scolded his groin. That's the reason that, obviously, they changed some of the dance routines <laughs> in Way Out West. There's a... Yeah. It's a... It's a um, but I do, there is, even that, I mean, that picture, which is one of the pictures that is, is most often used in, in terms of Laurel and Hardy, is, again, there's something so utterly lovable. Right, right. That's what I think, you know, Kurt Vonnegut would often talk about Laurel and Hardy. Samuel Beckett, you know, hugely influential. If, if, you, if you see a really good version of Waiting for Godot and you watch the, the relationship, like the, there's a, in fact, hopefully it's still on YouTube, it gets taken down very quickly, but they sometimes you can see the version done by Zero Mostel and Burgess Meredith. And that is a beautiful vaudeville routine. All that existential anxiety, but all the gags are there as well. Mm. And I, again, I wonder what it is. That, I, I suppose you can't. It's, it's that bit of dissecting comedy, which is what they have, that means that they still... I mean, that's what I find remarkable. When it, uh, David um, Robinson, who does a lot of uh, um, events here, he's the last person to have um, interviewed Lauren Hardy, the last surviving person. He interviewed them in 1954 for Sight and Sound magazine. And at the time, Sight and Sound were going, oh, God, we, I don't know if we want an interview with those uh, washed-up comics. Mm. And that now seems quite incredible to me because right. not long after that, not, lo not that long after Oliver Hardy died, you had people like Mel Brooks coming to through and Carl Reiner and Sid Caesar and all of those people would go and pay homage That's right, to they'd Stan go Laurel. to Stan's house. Yeah. Weirdly, once I was filming in, in Los Angeles and I was in this kind of uh, apartment complex that was a bit sort of past its prime and someone left a, a, a note for me with um, a CD and it was and the person said, I, I don't know if you're a fan, but, but Stan Laurel used to live in this apartment block. And this was like a series of interviews that he did late in his career. And there's something very tantalizing about being in a space that, like you say, Stan used to sort of allow in his later years, Dick Van Dyke and other people would, would come and sort of visit. And apparently, again, I've, I've learned a lot from this book. Apparently, um, Stan, the only thing that, he was a very gentleman. A lot of, he didn't get annoyed easily, but he did get annoyed by when they would sort of edit or truncate, you know, um, clips, you know, probably like we're doing tonight when they were on TV. <laughs> but also, um, he, he felt they were very slow. He would watch them and he would, and he would feel that they felt very slow. And it was because 
they were designed to have audience laughter. And like, it's quite pleasing to hear the laughs tonight because they sort of fill in some of those gaps which he felt when they were watched sort of on TV, felt too slow and he was kind of eager to get back in there and, and tighten them up and get the scissors. Um, well, that brings us very neatly to the next one, of course. Um, which is uh, Dirty Work. Now, I don't remember. I, I have to admit, this is one that I... Do, can you give us a bit of the background on Dirty Work? Uh, well, this, as I recall, they are uh, chimney sweeps. Um, again, nothing go wrong there. Um, <laughs> and um, they are working in the home of Professor Noodle. Um, and it seems to be something involving putting people into the brains of chimps or... But anyway, that's a sort of secondary story. Yeah. This is them mainly trying to clean a chimney. And this is... I think we joined the clip where um, Stan has inevitably pulled or accidentally pushed Ollie down a chimney. Of course. And, um, and here we are. I love that. I love just the... Uh, it's mainly a story about chimney sweeps with some light vivisection in the background. That's right. Just, that's a, right. just yeah. a bit of fun vivisection. Um, so uh, let's have a look at Dirty Work. And uh, I was just watching that then, and it just puts me in mind of, again, you can see their influence in, in Only Fools and Horses, and the, mm. you know, a lot of the, like, the classic chandelier yeah. sequence, which, you know, is, is, again, it's very much in that vein. I mean, that could almost be Laurel and Hardy. Do you remember where they're, they're they have to clean a chandelier, and they're up on a ladder, and they have a sheet beneath the chandelier, and above, Grandad is untightening the bolt. And clearly you're thinking, well, they're up a ladder and they have a sheet. There's no way they're going to be able to catch the weight of that chandelier. And they're clearly the, sh the chandelier is going to fall. It's going to go in the sheet. The sheet's going to knock them together. They're going to collapse to the floor. And, of course, that's not the joke. The joke is that Grandad's above the wrong chandelier. And when he hits the hammer, it falls. And they're still holding a sheet waiting for it. And you can see it in that, mm. just again, just simpletons trying to get a job of work done that they're clearly ill-equipped for. Uh, they, they should not be working in a sawmill. They should not be trying to uh, trying to paint a boat and do up a boat. They should not be working as um, as chimney sweeps. Clearly, yeah. whiskey uh, tasting didn't whiskey work tasting out is well. A terrible happened, idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I love. I mean, that great thing about the only fools and horse thing again is also the fact that the actual physical slapstick as such is happening right at right. the back of the shop, happening somewhere else. And that um, I think just watching that moment is actually reminds me again of that Samuel Beckett thing, which is it's the resigned nature. It's both of them looking, it's that I can't go on, I must go on, I'll go on. Yes, it's, yes. It's, it's that, you know, every time I watch the music box and, and I think, you know, just, it, it's, you know, if Albert Camus, don't do the myth of Sisyphus, Albert, about, just write a thing about some guys trying to get a piano up some steps. Right, right. And that, you know, when they're nearly there, someone go, you go around that way. We better carry it down again. You know, that, <laughs> that logic, and that pain of existence that just says, we'll just have to do. Well, and it's also just, again, just trying to retain a bit of dignity, just brushing the top of a hat. Mm. You know, it's covered in dust, yeah. but I could just get that bit off. Yeah, yeah. I'm back to where I was. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was thinking about, again, thinking of, of, of incidents from real life that where I, was, I had that moment of staring, as it were, at the audience. And... Um, I was at a uh, showbiz, LA showbiz party, and it was full of, you know, kind of famous people. And I was, you know, you're always a bit conscious for some reason, you want to make a good impression, trying hard to make a good impression. And, uh, you know, in California, um, uh, marijuana is legal, and there was some in, a, in, in chocolate brownies, that was just, I didn't, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that there was anything in there. I just thought it was chocolate brownies. I was like, this is great. What a great party. There's chocolate <laughs> brownies. And um, I ate this chocolate brownie. And someone said, well, there's, there's, there's uh, marijuana in that. And I said, pardon me? 
marijuana. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm six foot seven. I've probably got the constitution of, you know, of Willie Nelson. Um, and it turns out I have the constitution of a four-year-old child. And I immediately, just my brain just, just melted. And I felt, it was like I'd fallen inside my own body. And I was trying to peek out through my eyes, but I couldn't somehow. It was a very weird... Experience and I was just, just, and people would come up and I couldn't really communicate with them. And then I tried to have a lie down at the party, just but like I took up two sofas. And so that was just people were trying to sit and I was in the way. And then I went in the bathroom and I just stared into the mirror. Because there's one thing you should do when you're very, very high against your will, which is to stare at your own face in a mirror for what may have been 10 minutes, may have been three hours, impossible to say. I thought maybe a breath of air will. Um, will do the job. So I walked back out into the main party, and I could see the outdoor area, and I walked towards it, and I didn't see in front of me the eight-foot plate glass window, <laughs> and I walked straight through it. And it wasn't open, I walked through the glass. I walked through an entire plate of glass that shattered in its entirety, just clink falling down, and suddenly I was outside the party, <laughs> staring back in at silence, just this number of people just with, like Lauren Hardy, bits of glass just chink falling. And um, you don't know what to do in that situation, as you can imagine. You're not sure if you're supposed to go, ta-da! Yeah. Or, and I just saw people sort of gently come up to me to see if I was okay. And miraculously, I had sort of like a minor scratch and a kind of little cut on my hand and otherwise was completely untouched. And I just, then it's just like it's a weird... Like, I remember being led to the lobby. I remember someone ordering a taxi. I remember two people arriving at the party, not noticing me and just walking by. And, and one of them, I remember hearing one of them say, um, hey, did you hear that some wanker just walked through a plate glass window? <laughs> and this woke up the next morning and then wrote an, an email to the, um, the host of the party saying, great party, thanks very much. Um, don't know if you noticed, but I walked through a window. Um, very worried that she would sue me, you know, because it's a very litigious country, but they didn't. And... Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and it, I mean, it, was a, I mean, it was a pure Laurel and Hardy moment of just not, you know, of not, of, of, I mean, literally, you know what I mean? If you'd filmed it, the, the, physic, the, the glass falling and the staring and the, order, the people just staring and the trying to retain your dignity, which is very difficult to do in that situation. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, and I remember, um, I keep hearing versions of the story since from people who were there who have seen and filled me in with different bits of information. Um, and apparently I tripped on a cable, on a TV cable, and I actually fell backwards as I went through. So I, entered, I went through my back, backwards, which is why I was <laughs> otherwise unhurt. But, uh, I mean, it sounded like a funny story when I began, but really when you think <laughs> about it... I was just saying to see one of the things that I love about the Slapstick Festival and the reason I'm back here is it is so wonderful to have a whole audience, you know, that chance for everyone to watch Laurel and Hardy together and hear, you know, because normally you're just watching it on DVD or whatever and then have a whole room just going, this still works, Absolutely. this is still wonderful. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, we have a very short amount of time for questions from the audience, so if we could just pop the, the lights up if anyone would like to ask uh, Steve anything. I'll see if I can... Uh, we have, do I have a question over there? Or was that, no, that's just someone. Uh, yes, question down the front. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm just running through my head to think of similar acts, so 
There we go. Um, so the difference um, in physical size, height, weight, whatever, um, you've got so many acts that follow suit. So you've, we've already mentioned David Jason, Nicholas Lindhurst, yeah. yourself and Gervais, I guess. The Wet Bandits from Home Alone, Little and Large, sure. French and Saunders, it goes on. Do you think that's deliberate? How important is that in sort of slapstick and that sort of comedy working? <coughs> I mean, I think it's, 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 it's essential, yeah. And I think um, I mean, not only does it define them, right, really clearly, but also, like, you know, they, em they emphasise it. So Stan wears those slightly baggier suits and Ollie's always got a jacket that sort of seems to be barely held on with that one button and the hats are just, you know, a little too kind of not quite right. And, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the case of me and Gervais, I mean, I used to say to him, please don't lose weight. Yeah. I mean, like, I just thought you're fun. I used to say to him, you're funnier when you're fat. I mean, and then he started, like, working out. Remember, he, he did yeah, a celebrity yeah. boxing match, and he was working out every day. What are you doing? That's not fun. I think there's sort of weirdly vanity doesn't work as well with comedy. You know, I, don't, I think there's a reason why a lot of comedians aren't sort of super ripped. It's my excuse. Um, it was funny when he started having topless shots done when he got all muscular <laughs> and he stopped doing that again now, hasn't he? But the, the celebrity boxing thing was... Were you there that night? I was I remember, there, yeah. yeah, it, was, yeah. The, it was the most amazing... When, when Rick Gervais fought... Um, Grant Bovey, uh, Grant Bovey, uh, Anthea Turner's husband. husband, yeah. And uh, it was insane because they went into the ring and Grant Bovey thought that's just a charity thing and Rick Gervais went absolutely mad yeah. and then was nearly dead within the within end of the seconds. first round. Within seconds, yes. And it was one of my favourite nights with him because he actually couldn't talk afterwards. He was <laughs> unable to talk and the doctor had told his partner, Jane, 30 different things that if he made that noise, she had to call an ambulance. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> he's never been better. And uh, let's... Uh, uh, sorry, other questions? Um, yes, Dan Lev. Oh, I left the book in the, uh, backstage. Is it on that sheet of paper? Oh, it might be, yeah. I don't know. I think I left the sheet of paper back there. Oh, this is... Hang on, sorry you, about do that. Do you remember what Ollie ate, though? He, ha he ate some hot food that year. He Maybe did it. I tell you, he ate a lovely piece yeah. of lamb. What was it, sorry? 1911? No, it's not. Well, it's a sound well, film. One of the, the things that we love to do in terms of groundbreaking is it turns out the talkies began in 1911, yeah. then they changed their mind for 16 <laughs> years. So, um... 1911? 1932. Yeah, well, look, we don't were... trust you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they were using binary before, but now sure. they've managed to, to work it out. So that's. I love so. the idea as well, though, in 1930, <laughs> 1911, whenever it was 1930, <laughs> that the, the way to blackmail someone was a picture of them on the beach <laughs> and a woman's on your shoulders. One of the most scandalous things you could do in 1932. <laughs> um, have we got some more... Sorry, I can't... It's, uh, have we got any more questions? Have we got... Is that it? There's... Um, Steve, if you could, what would you ask Stan and Ollie? What question would you ask them? Well, I'm I'm always fascinated by how people work. You know how the, uh, the, the sort of what the dynamic was and how. I mean, I know that Stan famously wrote a lot of the jokes, and um, you know people would say that he was very much sort of in charge on the set, and that Ollie famously would just rather go and play golf, and that he was quite happy with that, and he didn't try and interfere, and. Um, and I'm sort of interested in, in that, the, the, the mechanics of how, you know, does, does Stan sit there and does he look around a room and does he think, I'm going to have Ollie struggle to get through that door four times in a row or there's a lovely leg of lamb, what can we do with that? You know, I just, it's interesting that, the kind of just the process of people, you know, and, um, and particularly, again, that period, you know, in the 30s, um, when uh, they were sort of still creating the language of films and, 
And so they weren't drawing on years of, of, of cinema. They just had to come up with this stuff, uh, how to pace it, how to um, design it for the camera. I just, I just I admire that greatly. Um, they were sort of doing a bit of everything. You know, they weren't just handed a script and, and told to, to make it funny. They were, they were working on the scripts, or in the, in the case of Stan. So I think I talk about that. I talk about the, uh, yeah, just the mechanics of the nuts and bolts of, of how they did it. We've got time for one more question. Have we got anyone there? Just a... Um, one quick question, really. You've got... I'm over here. That's right, hello. Oh, so sorry, sorry. sorry. Yeah. it's all about me. Um, <laughs> you've obviously chosen some of your favourite clips. Is there anything, if you had the opportunity to include a particular moment or one particular film, which is your absolute favourite? Uh, goodness, well, I think it's... I mean, I, I think I, di I didn't choose it because it does get shown a lot and I was trying to find some, some clips that perhaps people hadn't seen as much, but certainly, the, yeah, the one where they're in the, in the sawmill... Is, uh, is my favorite. I can't even remember what it's called, I'm ashamed to say. But um, I think when you're a kid, which is when you get exposed to a lot of this stuff, they almost blur into one. They're just like this long series of sort of magical moments. But I mean, I just think, again, it, it, the inventiveness of, if you recall, when Ollie gets a, a, a brush, paintbrush or a tar brush stuck to his chin. <laughs> and, um, and so Stan's method of getting rid of that is to trim off the handle <laughs> and then to lather up some soap and give him a shake <laughs> and shave off. <laughs> <laughs> the bristles of a, of a brush that stuck to Ollie's face. As, as, uh, and, and if you recall, the, the sound of the scrape of the bristles is this <laughs> kind of noise. And the whole time, Ollie just standing at the, staring at the camera like that, as if to say, this is absurd, but do you have a better idea? <laughs> and it's kind of, it's just magical. And I think we have one final question just up the top. Do we have, a, I'm sure I saw a hand up there. What's your opinion of the um, recent film? Because I, I loved uh, growing up watching Lauren and Hardy, but the film made me sad. Well, yeah. Because, because yeah. it was, it was a, you know, my, my, my memory of Lauren and Hardy was it made me laugh like tonight, made me really chuckle. But the film sort of made me think, God, did they really get on? Right, right. Well, I think, I mean, I, you know, I, I did speak, I met Randy to the director somewhere and I asked him about that and I think... You know, they have um, manipulated history a little bit to add a bit of drama because from what I can tell and what I've read and what he said, you know, on the whole, they were very loyal to one another. And when Ollie got so sick that he couldn't perform anymore, Stan vowed that he would never perform again and he never did, you know, um, without Ollie. So I think they were, there was a great uh, closeness to them. I think Hal Roach, who was their sort of producer and, and had them under contract, had very cannily made sure that their contracts never came up for renewal at the same time. And um, and sort of you know and Stan wanted to sort of you know re up and so he got uh, he kind of Ollie walked out with him and then kind of protest. So I think there was a great loyalty uh, between them. And I think um, I thought what was most impressive about that film was 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 particularly uh, Steve Coogan's you know impersonation, if you like, of Stan Laurel. I thought he it's easy to do a caricature of him, but I think we really captured the humanity and he managed to make Stan, who we just see as this idiot, into a man and into a person who was clever and smart and, and inventive. And, um, and I thought, well, particularly fast, I asked the director, because I don't know if you remember, but that in the film they recreate that famous dance from uh, Way Out West, where they kind of, you know, they dance and sing outside. Uh, and if you recall, in the original movie, made in whatever it was, um, 1911, the, um, <laughs> there's a sort of back projection, as they say, of this kind of wild west town, and they're kind of singing and dancing in front of it. And in the movie, they're, they're doing the same thing. And I said, w w did you recreate that back-projected plate? 
And he said, no, they found the original footage in a, in a vault somewhere. And so in the movie, they, they are dancing in front of the actual plate that Stan and Ollie danced in front of. And the idea that that stuff is just lying somewhere, waiting to be dusted off, I just, again, I find very thrilling for some reason. It feels like we're still connected to them in some way. But uh, watching Lauren Hardy together is a lovely way to end the day. And thank you very much, Steve Merchant. Thank for you guys for coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Robin as well. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Sorry, I probably interrupted you in a previous podcast, and I'm going to interrupt you again. Sea Shambles is on sale now, which is a follow-up to our Space Shambles show at the Royal Albert Hall that sold out in 2018, and in 2020 at the Royal Albert Hall, we are going to be discussing all things that are the sea, and myths, and krakens, or krakens, and amongst others, there will be Helen Chersky, who's here at the moment. I am, and I'm very glad everyone's getting excited about the ocean. It's long overdue. Yeah, it was going to be, it's still 80% mystery, so we don't know that that allows us to do lots of weird things. Helen's going to be there. Josie's going to be there. Steve Baxter's going to be there. Lem Cesar's going to be there. There are guest bands about to be announced soon. Anyway, that's enough of that merciless plugging. Earlier in the day, before I sat down and talked to Steve much about Laurel and Hardy, uh, the first event I did that day was talking to Timbrook Taylor about at last the 1948 show. And this was, I have to say, incredibly in- impressive. Uh, Timbrook Taylor, who will be 80 this year, the night before he was in Worthing doing a live version of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Uh, he then came to the Slapstick Festival for two days. He did four shows in those two days and then went straight off with his wife to go and do another uh, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, which was uh, up in Bradford. So uh, fantastic energy still, fantastically witty man and sharp. And it was a real delight to talk about the show that made it. It was a show that also starred John Cleese and Graham Chapman and Marty Feldman. And uh, I, I just read a copy of Marty Feldman's autobiography, I, Marty, which for some reason many people don't know about. And that was filled also with some lovely stories about working with Tim. So here is our conversation about one of the great classic tv shows that was the really the 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 final point before python began and the goodies went off and marty feldman became a hollywood star the joy of doing this every year is it it makes me return to things that i sometimes go i haven't got time to watch that and i can pretend it's work so i have been able to pretend to my wife that it has been very important work that i watch everything about at last the 1948 show and it has been an absolute delight and it is wonderful to be joined by well someone whose creativity over the last over 50 years has just been utterly magnificent and you will know him regularly at the slapstick festival and for all he work does please welcome timbrook taylor obe We'll, we'll start off, in fact, then, with something I just told you, which is uh, Marty Feldman. How many of you have read this book? It's Marty Feldman's autobiography. It's a, I thought it was a fantastic piece of work. If you don't know the background to it, um, his, his wife, Loretta, never returned to look at any of his written work after he died. And then a friend of theirs, uh, when she died, went up to the attic and found all these sketches and also found, and no one had known about this, he'd written his autobiography. There are many wonderful compliments for you, Tim, in this book. I'd like a copy now. The, uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd, I'd like to first talk about the fact that it's only very recently that all of this work has been found. Yeah, this is another 
fantastic piece of work by, by the BFI and people yeah. like Dick Fiddy uh, and fans, fans who, who didn't know that, these, that some of the episodes were lost and suddenly go, well, I've got an audio recording. And I've, um, what was that experience like of returning to see this show? It was quite spooky, really, because it's all in black and white and scratching. I thought, I wonder if Chaplin was around with us at that time. <laughs> it's that sort of picture. But you'd forgotten bits, and some of it is actually better than I remembered. Um, but I've got a very bad memory, so you can't go by that. But it's, I don't know, it was just lovely to see, because it had all been wiped. All those tapes, they, they, they didn't sort of, they taped over the tape you'd done. In fact, one of the sketches we're not going to show today, because we showed it last time, was uh, three plainclothes police women with their dressed up police women. And we had to f- record it again because there'd be mistakes, but they wouldn't cut it in any way, so we had to record it again. And the bastards, who were the other three in the thing, suddenly changed their names so that I was thrown by asking Quentin, what is your name? Uh, Bubbles. What? <laughs> and, and it's very unprofessional, but we're giggling a long way through it, and uh, I'm just encouraging you to buy the DVD, basically. <laughs> Well, it is... I mean, what's interesting, because John Cleese, there's a few things he did for the DVD, and there's one where he just speaks with such love of it. And I was waiting all the time. Whenever you watch John Cleese on anything, you're waiting for the moment that the knife comes out and he then yeah. twists it round. But he only talks of it with, with, with love and joy at the fact that it's been, you know, found again. And I think that sketch you're talking about, that I think one of the reasons people love seeing things like that is you do look like you're having such a good time. The four <laughs> of you working together, you're, you're, you know, you're, I suppose that's probably the most controlled you'd had over a TV show, would it have been...? Yeah, that's absolutely right, yes, if you can call it control. But it wasn't. It was, it, we were able to go and do the editing with the, with the director, etc., etc., and put things in. We were, had a big help from uh, Dennis Norden. On the, we used to all get together with bits of scripts we'd written, get together, decide on... and then do the final dress rehearsal. And it says a lot for Dennis Norden that all of us said... Whatever Dennis says, we'll do. And he came to the... Um, and we did. So, a brilliant man. That's what I find fascinating. When, when I was growing up, Dennis Norden was the person yeah. who, you know, showed it'll be all right on the night. Yeah. And Barry Took was the person who presented points of view. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and so you saw these people as conservative with a small C, kind of quite... And then you suddenly find out about, you know, the importance of Muir and, 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 and Norden, yep. the, the importance of Barry Took and, and, and Marty Feldman. And I think that, that's one of the joys of, of uh, also returning to this work. Someone mentioned, and it might have been an interview with John Cleese about this, which was that in the late 1950s and the early 60s, there, w- there was the satire boom. Yep. And by about 1965, people went, well, that, that's satire dealt with now. We, 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 we brought down all the great institutions. And there was a sense of a desire to go back to silliness. How much? I mean, that, that's a, a wonderful silly piece. I think that. even earlier than that, when well, Bill will agree, when we did our student review, we, we, there was so much satire around. We just wanted to be... We love music hall. We love music hall committee and silent movies, funnily enough. And so if you're brought up on Buster Keaton and things like that, you don't want too much satire. But there's a bit in it, and that, that and when we did the goodies eventually, there was quite a lot of satire in it, but it was put together with slapstick, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yes. <laughs> so the, and how much... I mean, I, I, I was... You're, you're this building up to this. You know, I, I hadn't realised how long you'd been, for instance, in New York. You know, you were all right there with Cambridge Circus, you're on Broadway, and then... Uh, I can't remember the name of the theatre now. Was it Lamplight or, or Limelight? There was a, a off-Broadway... Uh, we the, were in the... What was it, Bill? Can you remember? It was in the village, and it was uh, called... It was where all the satire was done, actually. Uh, Second City with a... Square just East. Be- what was it? Square East. Square East sounds right. 
If he's wrong, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, this is also the kind of audience where later on they will be giving out footnotes for things, errors that they've, they've noticed. The, um, but it is... Uh, they were filling in forms. It was absolute rubbish. <laughs> At least three of the dates were wrong, sometimes by up to five days. Um, <laughs> but it is... Uh, but that... Watching, because I, I watched when you were all on the Ed Sullivan show, for instance, you know, yeah. and, and this again, bringing that kind of what was some of it very, very silly stuff and taking that over to, to America. What was that experience like? That that was, uh, you were very celebrated. Well, the, the Ed Sullivan show was one of the most frightening things of my I was about to go on stage, and that said, You do realize 78 million people are watching this. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, it was great honor, and um. Ed Sullivan himself had seen us in London, and it was he wanted to bring it over himself. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have been on it. Mm. But um, it was great because, you know, we were on with the animals and Joan Sutherland and various... Do you see, I can remember. I can't remember what happened yesterday. <laughs> and in that... Because it's interesting seeing throughout the kind of... The, especially in the, in the first few years, lots of sketches came from lots of different places and ended up on television, and then some, of course, were recycled and placed in different... So how much of it last the 1948 show were... Would you go, right, here's... I know you, you wrote separately, didn't you? Was it John and Graham wrote together John and, and Ray, then Martin uh, you wrote? Martin, Martin and I wrote separately, but we occasionally got together and, and wrote various sketches. I find I need somebody to write with, so that's what happened. Um, and that was very important. I always go on about the Four Yorkshiremen sketch. That really started with Marty and I. We were doing a sort of one-upmanship and then a one-downmanship and then one-upmanship. And that was, you know, how it was written, in a way. Well, that seems, again, reading, reading Marty Feldman's book, where he ne at no point says, I came up with this or I came up with that. The, the whole way that he writes about last 1948 show seems to be, we were mucking around in the kitchen, and then Tim yeah. came in, and then Tim said this, yeah. and then Graham had it. And that sense of... It seems, and this might merely be now reading an autobiography, but the egos didn't come into it too much. It was the idea... That might be wrong. I don't know what your memory of that yeah, We went in a position to have egos at that stage. And uh, Martin, I don't know, Marty was just able to react to us. We were getting together. We were people thinking, this isn't going to work, but let's try and make it work. And, you know, you giggled all the time. I mean, it was that was the important part. And we worked quite hard at it at the same time. So... Marty was one. He was extraordinary when the last night. <coughs> excuse me, the last night in '48 show. When it started, we did a pilot, and David Frost. We owe. I always criticise David Frost, but we owe a lot to him. He asked us to do it, and we did the pilot. He looked at it and he said, "Well, it's very good, but um, not sure about Marty Feldman. I don't think people will like his eyes," <laughs> which, of course, was his fortune in many ways. Um, but it, it was a, it's a privilege to work with other people at that stage, and you didn't think you'd get away with it, and uh, we didn't. <laughs> there is, Marty Feldman said, uh, that with David Frost, he said, he said I, I don't look back in anger, but I do look sideways in suspicion, <laughs> which I think is a... Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very good. <laughs> I must write that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, what, what do you, in terms of David Frost, though, the, in the 1960s, so much of comedy seems to be he, he was there lighting some of the few, of finding. What do you think it was about him that he had that ability with the Frost Report, with that was the week that was, with this work, so many other things? I think that the most impressive thing was how he got people together as a producer. Uh, Bill will remember we did a tour of that was the week that was in America. Uh, with Willie Rushton, and but, but David would do three shows in England, one show of that was the week that was in New York, and then join us wherever we were in Canada, Western 
America. So he was doing that all in the same week. But the fact that he encouraged us to do the 48 show, that he got the two Ronnies and John Cleese together, and he, he was the producer behind it. Not the greatest performer, but the most wonderful producer. Thank you, David. <laughs> One, but before we, we move on to the next sketch, we'll say, Chartered Accountants, why? What was it about Chartered Accountants where they... Well, they were the establishment. They were the short... I suppose it was the short route in making fun of what serious people did, proper people. And it was, it was a shortcut. And wearing a bowler hat, just you put that on, that was it. You were already um, the establishment, basically. Yeah, my father-in-law, who is an accountant, right. said he enjoyed it. Because oh. accountants would go, oh, look, we're on the telly. <laughs> you know, they, they, we're not normally on the telly. Look, I, I don't mind that he's doing a silly dance, but that's us. Well, the accountants have been noticed at last. Did he do the dance, though? That's the question. That he he been... didn't, but we're going to a wedding soon, and I'm going to make him. <laughs> I, will be, I will be training. I will ensure that happens. Excellent. Um, well, it's interesting when you do see certain kind of sometimes share, because watching that now, mm. that feels very influential in then what Graham Chapman sometimes did with, with uh, military people in, in Python. Did yeah. you ever find yourself kind of going, hang on a minute? <laughs> well, you could see him, you could see Graham actually in that role very early on, and one of his natural things, playing, playing the establishment and uh, playing it very accurately. Did you find that you were. In, in terms of, a, a, was there ever a point where you would be able to go, if you watched a show, well, you can tell that's a Tim sketch, you can tell that's a, a, a John and Graham sketch? Because it seems to me that there, there was a sense that you could have gone, any, all of you at that point of writing were going in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I think that's true. I think John uh, particularly liked the verbal stuff rather than the visual stuff. Um, Martin and I like both, and we used to go off and actually watch football together. We saw the World Cup together, sitting near the Queen. We got up and when we won, we hugged each other and thought, oh God, people are watching us hugging, and then people in suits everywhere were all hugging each other. Um, but I don't know, it's, it, the different characters do fit in, and, but once you start giggling together, you can play any character at all. Possibly. He does mention in the book actually you going to the World Cup together. Oh, does he, he, he says, oh. yeah, he says it was his dad got the tickets for he you. Was. I think. Yeah. It was a I I'd bought tickets, standing tickets, for all the matches England at Wembley. But his dad, who was a rather dodgy East End tailor, managed to get some. So we were sitting very close to the Queen and I didn't think she minded at all. <laughs> With his, it also seems that he was he enjoyed doing things like apparently, I, I don't know if this is right, that sometimes if he was near you, perhaps on public transport, he would suddenly and this was before he was famous, so no one... People, he was a writer then, so no one knew his face. And he'd suddenly go, No, I will not, you disgusting man! And then charge off and leave you going, I didn't do anything. Well, I said I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that... that I, I love that, you know, that, that sense of humour, which apparently yeah. he felt rather sad when he went, Oh, now people know my face, so they'll know that I can't do that anymore. I think that's probably true, and he was... But you see, at the same time as we would write together, he was writing Round the Horn and things like that at the same time. And that's amazing, really. I mean, two days a week or three days a week, then two days and then do a show, and then next week they were doing another one. And listening on uh, Radio 4 Extra, it still makes me giggle Round the Horn. I was reading a lovely thing that um, Francis Bacon met him 
and they got pissed on Brandy, and Francis Bacon was a huge fan of Julian and Sandy. So just started to recite the sketches, the idea of one of our greatest 20th century painters also then playing Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams. The fact that... No, you know, that doesn't exist. Uh, that, that's a... I, d- I did a, a, a summer season with Hugh Paddock, and I said, w- were you Julian or Sandy? He said, wait a minute. Hello, I'm Julian, he's Sandy. I was Julian. <laughs> 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 the um, also in in terms of uh, the the uh, someone else wondered was Amy McDonald who I think again going back to these it feels very those moments where she appears as the lovely Amy McDonald and I think in the in the first series the, it built up didn't it and then the second it's only her that, there was a right? new uh, there was a new <laughs> totty every week uh, but Amy was the first as you say she I saw her very recently actually um, at the launch of BFI and. She looks exactly the same. She's wonderful. She's actually a very bright woman. Um, we asked her to write. We, we did an LP at the time, write some stuff on the front, and we patronising way said, don't worry, we'll, we'll fit. She wrote a brilliant thing, and it was much better than we'd have written, so we apologised to Amy. Well, she seemed so... I, I didn't realise she'd also... Before she, she was on at last time, she was a, a backing dancer for Elvis Presley, is that right? I don't know about Elvis Presley, but she was recommended by Marty Feldman. So John Cleese and I went to this club and we saw all these people dancing. And then we hadn't realised why all these very attractive ladies were joining us at the table and asking if we were interested in something. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> at that moment, on came some dancers, and there were four of them. And the third one was Amy, and we both immediately thought she was absolutely perfect. We were very naive, I have to admit. Sadly, didn't get anywhere that evening. <laughs> <laughs> she is tremendously charismatic in it yeah. as well. Those, those brief moments yes. uh, hold it together perfectly. Well, it was a send-up. We hadn't got a female in our cast, which is, wasn't one naturally there at the time. So this was our... Women are wonderful, but let's make fun of them. <laughs> mm. the, uh, oh, but that's an interesting right. thing in terms of a change of comedy now when, when I worked with my friend Josie Long we used to have a kind yeah. of running that women in sitcoms for a very long time the only thing they would do is they would turn to the husband character and go oh Bob and that was it they would be sanity yeah. and I think that now we see that's return true, yeah. to a lot of more of the kind of proper screwball the proper yeah, uh, yeah. women realise they're as stupid as we are now <laughs> There's some wonderful. They're not quite. Lady Dynamite. Have you seen Lady Dynamite? No, I haven't. That's magnificent. Well, I'll tell you about that later on. We can talk about it. Now, long before uh, there were the uh, Suits User Tailors of the Fast Show, uh, again, another beautifully. But let's have a look at this is uh, the Taylor sketch from at last the 1948 show. Did you have a sense, any sense of the trajectory where you were all individually going in terms of for instance I mean I know that within at last 1948 show there's there's a lot of people who pop up quite often in the background who Eric Idle turns up in in a few sketches Barry Cry you sometimes hear his voice and also see him uh turning up in sketches there's there's all of this you know from that seed if you I know the seed but but from that it takes in almost all of 1960s 1970s kind of British comedy there's so many different things did you have a sense that well, we were all we all had originally worked on the Frost programme and various other things, and so we were meeting and doing shows and then writing for other people's. And so we didn't really know. We just thought, well, as I said before, are we going to get away with it? But 
It is, I know that I'm extremely grateful to have worked with people who are very good writers and performers, and that, that just makes it possible. And I'm not just talking about Belotti. <laughs> but also, you say you're... I have to say, again, something else in, in, in Marty Feldman's book, which will definitely mean that you want it, but he talks about the ease in which he found in terms of, of working with you, and that the trust that he had, the moment he knew you were in the sketch, and you two, eye to eye... It was he felt comfortable, and that must be something you know. That 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 to have that ability to, to just go right. I know this is going to be funny. I think I'm I going to cry in... now. <laughs> I haven't read this book. I didn't know it existed, so that I'm looking forward to reading that. So please go on. But no, he just yes. <laughs> he said he always thought you were the best, and he he always said yes. He said he always thought of the last the 1948 show. None of the rest of the cast are here, are they? Uh, the, uh, he said he felt that John was a letdown. Anyway, let's move on. The, uh, oh, I want a copy now. <laughs> we will. Uh, well, we'll finish with what, it, what is really, I suppose, the most famous sketch, and we mentioned it briefly before. And it's for a lot of people still they don't realise it is. Uh, and at last, the 1948 show sketch. So, how, how do you feel about the? Uh, uh, not yet. Uh, how do you? Um, how, do, how do you feel about the? No. The way they, the <laughs> well, it's it's. It, I'm fine now, but it was for years and years. Even when I was playing golf, or somebody would say, "Oh, that's terrible." And mind you, if you haven't seen the really bad one, oh, it's just like the Marty Python, uh, Marty Python sketch. I say like that. And then when they did their show at O2, they actually said, "Shall we give you some money for that as well?" <laughs> I went, "I can't believe what I'm hearing." But yes, please. And ninepence isn't bad. You know. <laughs> Did you see that at the O2? Did you get a chance? Yes, I did. It was really good. I thought it was terrific. And uh, especially the four Yorkshiremen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was such... Because I think they opened with that pretty much, didn't they? It was, it was one of the first, early on, first sketches. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What I found quite amazing about that, and I think I see a lot in terms of the slapstick as well, and a lot of the things that I've, I've, I've been watching of your career and other... Is people, when they sat in the O2... I don't know how many of you went and watched my Python there, but people weren't laughing out of nostalgia... There was this laugh that came as if it was the first time that they were watching so many things that had become familiar, but yeah. to suddenly see it in, in that... Yes, great, actually. And actually, I, th I, I think an, an audience is terribly important for comedy, just to time things. So that, you know, there are quite a lot of comedies now that are good, very well written and very well acted, but I want an audience to share, for them to be able to time the laugh, actually. That's the end of that lecture. No. <laughs> I should say that I was reading a book of comedy criticism the other day, though, and they did say the four Yorkshiremen sketch has much been repeated, but never bettered than its original outing. So I'll tell you what that book was as well, so you can get that. Um, uh, it's by Charles Dickens with three Ks. So um, let's have a look at the, uh, the I, th I think it's fair to say, the most famous sketch from the last 1948 show is The Four Yorkshiremen. <laughs> that was Tim Brooke Taylor. And that's the end of this slapstick episode. We're going to do another slapstick episode. Um, the next slapstick episode that goes up will be me talking to the goodies about their top five episodes chosen by the public, not chosen by them. Indeed, there was some consternation. They don't agree with the uh, the public's favourite episode. In fact, at times, uh, Bill's face was going, well, why are they chosen this one? And uh, also, it was, it was a big night as well. Bill, Bill didn't mention this till till a couple of days afterwards, but uh, his daughter, their, her band was actually up for a Grammy award as well so uh, she didn't win it but she was nominated for a Grammy so uh, another thing you can do after you've listened to this episode is uh, listen to Bill Oddie's youngest daughter her, her band Bones UK but before you do that um, well just stop listening now because we've finished 
Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you need to go to support the podcast or just leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Both of those things really help us out. Don't forget Sea Shambles, May 17 at the Royal Albert Hall. Have a great week. We'll be back soon with more slapstick shambles and obviously more book shambles. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more podcasts, live events, documentaries, and lots of other things uh, to uh, feed your mind or give your mind indigestion, sometimes make your mind physically sick, then go to cosmicshambles.com. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.